Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I have a dear friend who is, make a list, here we go, a pilot, a marathon runner, a business owner, an avid reader, a philanthropist, among many, 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 many other things. All of this, and he does all of this, at 82 years of age. One of Tom's favorite lines that he loves sharing with me is this, Johnny, I love to put the odds in my favor. I think it's why he works out. It's why he eats differently. It's why he chooses, and it is a choice, my friends, to stay active. It's why he reads voraciously. Tom reads more than 50 books a year. It's why he participates spiritually. It's why he shows up still for his friends and for his family. He's trying as a young man and today to continually put the odds of life, odds of impact, odds of vibrancy in his favor. It turns out while death is inevitable, the essentials of health allow us to live as healthy as possible on our journey. And that true health is hidden in the tiny million moments of everyday life. To live a truly healthy life, We need to choose to connect to one another and to find a purpose, find joy, and find meaning in our lives. To do exactly this, we brought on our guest today who is a mother. She is a writer. She's a researcher and a physician. She is here to encourage you, regardless of your age or where you find yourself today in your life, to put the odds in your favor and to live into the best of your life. My friends, today, I encourage you right now to buckle up, grab your journals. You'll be wanting to take notes on this one. Open wide your minds as we bring on our newest guest, our newest friend. Her name is Kelly Harding. Dr. Kelly Harding, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you. Your story is certainly one that has resonated with me, and um, I'm honored to get the time with you. It, it is our honor, and as you might imagine, as a podcast host and as a guy who's always trying to do a little bit better today than I did yesterday, I read a lot. I read a lot. Kelly, I loved your book, The Rabbit Effect. So I'm, I'm going to just kind of walk through your story in the way you told it in the book that came out just a couple days back. It's called The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. It's a phenomenal book. And it begins, though, with you in medical school. Why'd you go to medical school? 
Well, I went to medical school because I wanted to help people, and I figured that that was the most direct way to do it. I wanted to learn absolutely everything I could about health. As a kid, I really loved science, and I loved helping others, and it just seemed like the nicest blend of all of that, and in many ways it is. It was one of those things where you know I showed up, and I basically sequestered myself in a library cubicle the first couple of years and then eventually the hospital wards. And my goal was really to learn absolutely everything I could about the human body. And, you know, we sort of in medical school, I went to a wonderful school called the University of Rochester in New York, and it was very much focused on learning about areas outside the body, but there was sort of this in the back of my mind, and I probably showed up with it, this bias towards learning everything about the body. It's like social history was nice if there's time. And then one day I got on the wards and I met the patients and all of a sudden there was this glaring mismatch between Hmm. what was in the textbooks and the people in front of me. Um, And it was something that just kept coming up again and again. And it's this idea that It could be something, everything goes beautifully in the hospital and then they leave and they never do well or they come back right away. In fact, um, it reminded me a little bit of when you tell your story in your book, people who may recover from serious burns, but they never sort of get back into life in Mm -hmm. that same way. And um, this always struck me as sort of curious, or I'd see people, two people with the exact same, sometimes very serious diagnosis. One would do very well and the other person wouldn't. And you'd sort of wonder what what's going on when sort of biologically they seem so similar. Because of that, I, you know, I ended up sort of going down this path where I started in internal medicine or adult medicine. And then I ended up thinking, well, maybe it's something about the way the mind is functioning. So I studied psychiatry. And then actually, I still didn't have the answer. So I ended up doing a research fellowship. And basically, it was a research fellowship at Columbia that focused on medical mysteries, sort of these symptoms that don't have a clear cause. It was during that fellowship that I ended up hearing about these rabbits. And I'll tell you about the rabbits in a second. But but basically, what I was also seeing is that things were not going particularly well. It's, it's no secret that we spend a fortune in America on medical care. And sort of when you look at like the big picture population, for the amount we spend, we should be getting a much better return on our investment. And because it affects all of us. It's something I cared a lot about and trying to really understand what are we missing in medicine became this like driving question. And so because of that, I ended up hearing about these rabbits and I, it sounds like you, you've you looked at the book, so you have some sense of the study. I've done my homework. I've read. I've not only looked at your book, I'm looking at it right now. I read the book, I underlined the book, and I've shared the book. It's, it's great. Oh, so, so take nice. us away from New York. Take us way down to New Zealand and tell us about some rabbits. <laughs> so this study sort of blew my mind, and it opened up this other door that ended up having a lot of the answers. So the study basically goes like this. Um, in the late 1970s, Dr. Robert Neerum was doing this. He's a basic scientist. He was doing a very basic lab study looking at how does cholesterol affect health. They basically took all these New Zealand white rabbits and they fed them a very high fat diet, the kind of diet that we now know sets somebody up for heart attacks and strokes and things like that. They computed the results and they looked at it and they realized there was one group that something was off with the data and they couldn't quite figure out what it was. So they went through all the numbers again, everything came out the same. And then they sort of looked up and looked around at each other and realized it was all of those rabbits were being cared for by the same lab postdoc. 
at first I thought it was sort of a coincidence that these rabbits were having a much better health outcome, even though they were genetically identical, getting the same diet. And so what they did is they replicated the study, this time really paying attention to the TLC that these rabbits were getting. Mm -hmm. And they got the same results and they published them in science. And this is incredible. I've had the privilege of talking with Dr. Neerum and he said, I'm not a basic scientist, but we couldn't ignore the effect that the social world was having on these rabbits. And it basically came down to kindness and connection. She wasn't just feeding those rabbits, she was petting them and giving them love. And that was making all the difference to their health outcomes. So you know, I sort of ended up running with this idea and I studied public health as well at Columbia. And I realized there's this entire body of research out there. I mean, decades and decades of research that I had been unaware of as a physician working mostly in the emergency room. It was that our social world deeply impacts our health on so many levels. So I felt at some point that this became a story that I absolutely had to tell. And so I started to write it out and it actually, you know, it was my project at the public health school. And I thought, you know, well, maybe this needs to go beyond the medical center. It needs to be something that all of us understand because it, it really the message is that health isn't something that's happening just in hospitals. It's, right. you know, health is something that's happening in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, in our schools, in our jobs. And they actually, the data is mind boggling. Our medical care, as important as that is, really only accounts for about 10 to 20% of our overall health. Everything else, genetics play part of a role in that, but even that is not as set in stone as we tend to think of. And that pretty much everything else has to do with our world and how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And that's so incredible. I think particularly during times that can be sometimes challenging, it's really important to keep in mind that it's our connections to each other that really matter when it comes to our health and well-being. You know, I, I think what I enjoyed so much about what you shared there and what you shared in the book is you are adding data onto what I know. So like in my heart and in my experiences in life, I, I kind of vaguely know what you're putting forward to be true, but then you call it out in the, in the rabbits. And then you call it out through example after example after example throughout the book. And we're just going to unpack a couple of them with our listeners today. Talk about Bella and Daisy. So in the book, there are two patients I describe, and they're two patients that I would say have come to me in many, many forms over time. Um, and I call them in the book, you know, not their real names, mm-hmm. uh, Bella and Daisy. The idea is that Bella is, she's had a very serious diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and she's somebody on paper, you look at her medical chart and she sounds like she should be at death's door and then you meet her and she's actually functioning pretty well and has lived a long time with a serious illness, then you sort of contrast that with Daisy and you realize that with her, you know, she's coming in and every single doctor knows a Daisy. It's somebody who, or maybe, you know, sometimes we are Daisies too, where you just get this sense something's not right, but nothing can be found. It doesn't quite fit in the realm of depression or even anxiety or things like that. It's something physically isn't isn't right and the person's not thriving. But yet there's sort of like when we run the standard test, we can't find any particular diagnosis. And so 
because of, of the contrast of these patients. And it's sort of, I think, particularly for Daisy, it, it's frustrating because, and it's frustrating for Daisy's doctors too, because, you know, doctors want to help people, but the way that they can help, it turns out, maybe isn't necessarily coming in the form of a pill or another prescription. So it's sort of looking and taking a step back and sort of thinking about the people's hidden factors of health, these sort of realms that happen outside the hospital that really help somebody survive. And actually, I'm going to just change gears here for a second. Yeah. I mean, when I heard your story, I just couldn't believe it. It really described the benefits, the rabbit effect in action, basically. I mean, it's all those hidden factors of health and all the circles of health that support us. You describe so beautifully in your work. And I think it's so critical and we so often don't see it, what's sort of right in front of us. So thank you for highlighting that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. And thank you for being part of that, uh, not only for the patients you serve, but now for the readers that you're impacting. I am a big cuddler. I think I learned it as a kid. I missed it when I was in hospital and I've been seeking it ever since I got out. I love cuddling. It's my, I guess my love language ah. is touch, man. So there it is. The cool yeah. thing about your book is you spend an awful lot of time sharing the power of touch. Talk yes. about that. Yeah, absolutely. So touch, this sort of gets at a couple different realms and the book, I sort of go through these hidden factors and I picture it almost like a drop of water and sort of like a ripple effect of, of a drop and then all the realms that come out from that. The closest one are these sort of one-on-one -on -one relationships and touch is often a huge part of that. Whether it's cuddling a kid, our spouse, a loved one, I had not appreciated the extent of touch on human health. And it's fascinating because it really creates this sort of biological change. I use the example, it's happening on a molecular level, basically. Right. What's so fun and something I really enjoyed with this book was the opportunity to talk to some of the scientists that were doing this very basic research and were just completely dumbfounded by the fact that, you know, our social world is actually changing our biology. That's not how we had previously thought about biology in the past. We thought it was something fixed and things happen just on a time frame. And it's like, here it is that actually touch can help people heal in ways that they, we never imagined. One particular, there's the rat-looking studies, which I talk about, <laughs> where basically it turns out that the way that a mother rat cares for her pups, it can actually change their biology. Yeah. And it's these epigenetic changes. So on top of the genes changes that have been studied time and time again. And it's really transformative because one that's saying that, you know, the way that we interact with our kids and touch them is actually helping their health down the road. And then loving, warm, positive touch, of course. And the other thing is it also makes us look at how we've done things in hospitals, how we've done things when people thought they were doing the right thing, sort of separating kids or mm -hmm. in orphanages. There were studies done in Romania. So the kids that they thought they were doing the right thing by keeping them safe from illnesses actually had far worse outcomes than the kids that were with grouped with other people, even though if it seems more at risk of putting them at illness the way that we understand germ theory. So, you know, it's really sort of mind-boggling, but awesome science. That's a big one. The other thing is touch is so important throughout our lives. And so even if 
for people who don't have kids or maybe they live alone, you know, thinking about ways to try to incorporate more touch into their lives. And as a doctor, that's something I had never really thought about. But actually, people who go, you know, older women who maybe go get their hair done regularly or having a pet, touch comes in many, many forms. And it's made me much more conscious of it because I came from a family that wasn't particularly touchy. But at the same time, I've really tried to incorporate it. And then the other funny piece of this is because all the data on hugging basically shows how helpful that is for your health. And once I wrote the book, I've had people come up and sort of give me hugs, which <laughs> right. I've I've gotten more comfortable with. And actually now I quite appreciate it, but it's funny because it took me a little while to figure out like what's going on here. <laughs> so, so I, you know, you, you also wrote about hugs and the cold virus. And so uh, we're not far away from the cold virus rearing its ugly head again. And many yeah. of us think, you know, if I, as long as I don't touch anybody, I'm going to make it through the season just fine. And I think, yeah, it's about the cold, but it's about much more than that. As long as I can isolate myself and be a strong, powerful island, I can get through this storm. And yet your research says the exact opposite. What does it yeah. say about hugs and the cold virus? This is still a work in progress, but the evidence thus far is really, it sort of flips what we had understood about germ theory on its head to some extent. And that's this this research, this growing body of evidence that shows that hugs and physical touch are protective towards illness. I think what's really cool, and this is a theme throughout the book and like with um, the two patients I describe with Bella and Daisy, it's this idea that you know, it's not just preventing illness and not getting sick, but it's when illness occurs that actually we function and do better with it. It turns out there's evidence that with hugs, it not only seems to prevent cold and flu, and they do this with sort of studies by actually um, isolating people and injecting the virus in their nose and stuff. And then they ask them about what's been going on in their life around it. And it's pretty amazing because time and time again, it seems as though hugs actually diminish the power of the cold virus to make you sick, which is incredible. And then also it seems to prevent people from getting sick, which is also amazing. And, you know, we think of people and I think medicine right now, it's changing, but you know, I know when I was in med school, it, it sort of has this feeling of focusing on a human body out of context, you know, not thinking about the ways that that human body is operating in a system that it, they're interacting with constantly. And the cool thing is it seems like love and kindness in all these different forms make a difference for us. It's probably this interplay between our mental health and our physical health, but our social environment is a huge, tremendous totally overlooked part of that. And we need to be talking about that because that's not something your doctor is going to help you with. That's something, you know, we're going to all help each other with, basically. Well, there's there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, someone much wiser than I said those words 2,700 years ago and later on said these, a faithful friend is the medicine of life. The Ecclesiastic proverb that you share in the book, a faithful friend uh, is the medicine of life. What does that mean to you? I think your story with Jack Buck illustrates that beautifully. Knowing when you've got challenges ahead of you, that you have somebody by your side is priceless and people do better. And this was the hidden thing I was missing in the hospital with all the patients when I was trying to figure out why are some people doing better. It's all those layers of support. A faithful friend is critical. So that friend can come in a variety of forms. And sometimes we have one particular friend that stands out for us and carries us when we don't think we can go on. And, uh, you know, with that story with Jack Buck is so beautiful and it really illustrates that for sure. 
Now, Kelly, you know I'm the one that's supposed to be interviewing you on this podcast. It's not the other <laughs> way around. We're not supposed to be unpacking the O'Leary story here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears away from that immediately, although I love the Jack Buck story, and I love the story of love in action, not just clinically, but in all facets of life. We're dead without it. Not just if you get burned, but if you kind of safely tread through life, we're dead without love. And you, you kind of unpack that a little bit when you talk about telomeres. Tell me and our listeners what telomeres are. Telomeres are this amazing thing that Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who's out at UCSF, she's the one who, she won the Nobel Prize for discovering it. And her research, if you're not familiar with it, it's super cool. Um, and she's worked with a team with, there were several others that also won the Nobel Prize. She's run with it in the sense that not only did she first discover these sort of, um, you could think of them as the little ends on a shoelace. Mm -hmm. They're at the end of our DNA and are caps on the shoelace. And basically they protect our DNA and they get shorter and shorter over time. And she studied, it's called senescence, when eventually the cell dies, they run out of telomeres. But what's so fascinating is there's this enzyme called telomerase that can help lengthen our telomeres too. And what she noticed in her work and her ongoing research is that telomerase seems to interplay with our social environment in ways that were previously not understood. And it's incredible because initially it started with sort of like stress in the social environment. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so there have been these studies that show kids who live in stressful neighborhoods start out life with shorter telomeres. The flip side of that is it seems that people who have life purpose and they know their why, those folks seem to have longer telomeres. And that doesn't mean any of us are going to live forever, but it just means that telomere length seems to be associated with all causes of disease. So the shorter the telomere, the more likely you are to get the chronic illnesses, the serious illnesses. So, you know, ideally we'd like to keep telomeres at a healthy length. And there's a balance in there because there are some cells that can sort of live on forever and those are cancer cells. But so there's clearly a balance in there. It's not a precise science, but the, the bottom line of it seems to be our social world seems to like reach in and fiddle with telomere length. And that's incredible. <laughs> so absolutely incredible. Um, so I can, I can hear some of our listeners right now asking, Dr. Kelly Harding, how do we extend the, the length of them? How, how do we expand and grow our telomeres? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to connection. And it's a story with the rabbit effect, I realized, and that's part of what really compelled me to write it. This is a big story and it affects all the layers of our lives. So it's, you know, the one-on-one -on -one relationships and trying to make our homes as, you know, stress is a part of life, but how do we buffer that stress for the people we love and the people we live with? So that comes down to trying to really foster those positive connections. And again, this is something I heard in in your story with your family. I mean, it was really incredible how your parents and your siblings really buffered the stress that had happened and, and with the accident and then also everything that followed. And I think that's the thing is we just know stress happens. It's how you weather that stress. And that's probably the biggest, most immediate thing we can do is think about the people you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the second layer kind of gets at the having a faithful friend. And that's every single bit of positive social interaction seems to count. You've probably heard these studies about loneliness now where it's like, you know, loneliness appears to be worse for your health than being severely overweight. It's worse than, you know, heavy alcohol use. It's sort of the equivalent of smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. Um, so 
really anything you can do to boost your connection to the people around you, to your community, to the communities you participate in, um, that seems to be critical. And, you know, for many of us, that ends up being work. Um, so your work life, it turns out, is a far bigger predictor of your health than practically anything else. Wow. Um, and it's amazing because it's it's very common to tolerate a not great work situation a lot of times, but it turns out probably your manager has a bigger impact on your health than your doctor. So you want to work with people as much as possible and learn to navigate conflicts at work in a way that sort of buffers stress that you can focus on doing something that you can find some dignity and, and enjoy. Not everybody's job has to be sort of their life's purpose, but at the same time, like being treated with dignity at work is a huge, huge thing. And I know a lot of people who are managers and leaders and bosses listen to your podcast. One of the things to take away is actually the way that you treat your coworkers really impacts their health. And these studies were like these massive population studies called the Whitehall studies. And it's just striking. They sort of, just as a side note, it's sort of like a matter of housekeeping almost. They figured out, they noted people's uh, grade and where they were at work and realized that it was actually like almost a stepwise fashion that the people who had more sort of autonomy, more ability to meaningly participate in their day had better health outcomes than the people who felt like they really were constrained and not treated well. So it's really something important to to think about. You wrote a lot about stress in the book and managing it recognizing that yeah. the vast majority of us are overwhelmed, we're overworked, we're overloaded. So so help John O'Leary and his listeners and uh, our families better handle and manage and lead through these stressful times that I think the vast majority of us are in right now. What, like what are a couple practical ways, Kelly, that we can we can mitigate stress? The first thing to recognize, you know, stress isn't necessarily bad. It's just a part of life. And so, in fact, it reminds me of that quote about, I'm going to paraphrase here and probably butcher it, but that idea of sort of being on a road and it's how you walk on that road that matters. Yes. You <laughs> can't always choose the path that you walk in life, but you can choose the manner in which you walk it. Absolutely. So that's my feeling about stress. So it's how you're going to navigate when stress comes up. And so there's the basics, sleeping, eating. For people who meditate, I've actually because I work in mental health, I really tried to make a practice of meditating. I'm trying to include my kids in it. And it, because the data is just like overwhelming that that's good for us, even in small quantities, that's incredibly helpful for just not getting as riled up when stuff happens to you during the day mm -hmm. and how you respond to it. Um, you know, exercise, this classic health things that people think about. But then I think the other thing that really mitigates stress is how you build those connections. So paying attention to your relationships at work is really important. And then the the other thing that is part of this is because really, you know, kindness is not being a pushover. Kindness actually requires a lot of skill when it comes to navigating conflict resolution and how you do that in the workplace. So trying to look at the problem, not the other person. The other thing is getting out there and meeting people in any capacity, whether you know it's in your neighborhood, at volunteering, doing something slightly outside your comfort zone so that you're meeting new people actually tremendously buffers stress. And there's this really cool data about volunteering actually mm -hmm. seems to help probably the person who's doing the volunteering more than the person who's the recipient. So, you know, it's there's a health boost to it. It does good and it's actually good for our bodies as well. The other thing, 
having a sense of purpose, a reason to get out of bed in the morning really seems to help people thrive, even sometimes with serious illness. And so a, a big piece of that is finding something you love and, you know, sign up for a class for it. It can be even online, but just try to connect with other people that are interested in the things you're interested in. Even better if it's face-to-face, um, there's something going on in your community or you know, like a free seminar. Most libraries offer free seminars, you know, show up at the library, hang out, you'll meet some people. It's amazing if when you sort of look for those opportunities to connect, they manifest in many ways. Mm. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears on you now. I'm going to talk about Goldie Hawn, but probably not the Goldie Hawn you think I'm about to talk about. So (laughs) it's second grade, Kelly, I'm at a school picnic and I play this little game. I win the prize and I choose as my gift, a goldfish. So my, my poor dad oh. sees me coming to him. I, I walk up to him. I make him leave the picnic. We go and buy a little aquarium set. We get the gravel, the fish, cactuses. I mean, we got it all. The, the fish even has a house. We get the air bubble, bubble machine, the right kind of food, everything. And then three days later, I come home and my fish is at the top of the aquarium taking a nap, not moving. And it never moves again for the rest of its life. And I made with Golihan it two and a half days longer than you made it with Snoopy. So uh, talk about Snoopy and what Snoopy has to teach us about life. So I love that name, by the way. Goldie Hawn is brilliant. <laughs> Snoopy was my favorite cartoon character. So my goldfish was named Snoopy, but Snoopy did not fare nearly as well. Right. Um, so so I have a chapter in the book sort of thinking about our, our bigger environment. And I use that uh, story of the goldfish to sort of illustrate because I, for a long time, probably like you, I thought that goldfish, their lifespan was pretty short because I don't think I ever got a party goldfish or goldfish at a fair or anything that lasted more than a week or two. So my Snoopy lasted one night, essentially, and it was devastating when I was a kid. But the moral of that story is it turns out that goldfish can live like 30 or 40 years (laughs) given the right set of circumstances. And that's amazing. So um, part of that is sort of thinking about our our broader environment, because we're like Goldie Hawn in that bowl, that our our environment makes a difference. And you kind of have to have all the elements as supportive as possible to help that goldfish thrive and to live as long as possible, but not only live, but live well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's kind of what we're getting at. It's like, you know, the goal here isn't to live forever. It's to live well with the days that you're given and, you know, to try to maximize that. And that's really in many ways, I think the the moral of the rabbit effect is every day is such a precious gift and it is so easy to get caught in the sort of stress of the daily life like the responding to emails or all the demands at work or with families or communities or tending to a home and I you know the idea is like how can we make this as enjoyable and as much a community activity as possible and it sort of comes with this realization too that we're we're all in this together. And sometimes I feel like it, it can feel like there's a lot of, especially right now in our country and our world, it feels like there's a lot of tensions and, you know, us versus them mentality. And I think as as much as you can, when you connect with other people, you realize, you know, at, at our, and I see this as a doctor, at our heart, we're all very similar in the sense as human beings, we want love, connection, it's amazing what's so similar about us as as creatures, so. There's so much in the book that we could spend literally hours unpacking. It came out just a couple days ago. It's called The Rabbit Effect. I'm gonna push forward toward the end of the book. You tell the story, and this one really stuck with me on Chloe. 
Talk about Chloe. Uh, explain her story and what it really means to our listeners. Absolutely. So working in New York City and working in the emergency room, you come to appreciate that things happen to people from all walks of life and and that everybody, no matter who they are, can you know have things in their background that you would never sort of know looking at them. So in the book, I, I talked about Chloe, who was somebody who was known in the media. And I, of course, the stories are changed to protect the identities of mm-hmm. the actual people. But um, it's one of those things where from the outside, she had this incredibly glamorous life that you would never guess the things that she struggled with. And I think in particular, her story resonates because, you know, we sort of live in this like social media world where it looks like everyone has these picture perfect lives and you don't necessarily know what somebody's been through Um, because they don't necessarily, some of the biggest things that impact us are not something that are are visible. They're things that that we carry with us in our bodies and our psyches, but, you know, other people wouldn't necessarily see. So unfortunately, I've met many Chloe's over my time as a doctor, but she had a suicide attempt and it was, it seemed out of the blue. But when we look back at her history, we realized that she had actually had a lot of what are known as adverse childhood experiences. And mm-hmm. ACEs are something that I did not know about until I didn't even learn about it in sort of continuing medical education. It was something somebody in a different field pointed out to me. And I was shocked because basically you can even go online and find out your own ACE score. But basically, the more ACEs you have in your pocket, it increases your risk of certain diseases. And it seems to be across the board. So this really gets at sort of things in our environment that we're not necessarily tending to that are out there. It gets into like what's happening in our homes and, you know, how other people treat each other. But it's actually having these long-term health impact. Childhood adversity, adversity can happen obviously at any point, but childhood adversity in particular, if unmitigated, can have these negative outcomes decades later. And so it's things, you know, like traumas that can happen and also relationships, the loss of a parent, um, abuse, those kinds of things. The thing to be aware of is one, these things happen and two, what are you going to do? So people being aware that that's something that impacts their health is first of all, the most important thing. And then also looking for sort of trauma-informed care. So Chloe, who fully survived and the story about her ACEs, came out and she was able to leave the hospital and go on and do well. It's hard though, because I think a lot of times people keep their cards close to their chest. So they don't, uh, people very close to them, sometimes in her case, her sister didn't even know the extent of what had happened to her. We are so intimately tied to our social situation and we carry so many things around with us sort of feeling like it's our fault. And the thing that has struck me as somebody who's interested in the interplay between the mind and the body is how those things, if they're not addressed, impact the body in ways that we don't appreciate. And yeah, you just would want every single person that's experienced things like that. And it's every other person basically has a history of trauma in their lives. Um, It's, it's the kind of thing that we should all be talking about. It's why speaking about emotional health and, you know, mental health is so important and so important to destigmatize too. Well, my, my fourth guest ever used uh, an expression called post-traumatic growth. Her name was Michaela Haas. Uh, it's an awesome conversation we have about post-traumatic growth. And it's also something you bring up here. If you, if you don't do anything with what you've been through in the past, it it will show its ugly face. The house isn't big enough to hide all the stuff we bury in the closet. 
So how, how yeah. do we intentionally use the experiences from the past and the difficulties of today to enjoy post-traumatic growth? I'm going to bring it back to you for a second. Something I really love, you talk about these inflection points. And I don't think we have to stress that bad things have happened to us are necessarily going to make us live shorter lives. I think the the thing is, how do we approach it and how do we look at it? And so that's sort of the idea with post-traumatic growth. And it's pretty incredible because our lives would not be as rich if bad things didn't happen to us too. And so that's why I particularly like this idea that, you know, stuff happens. Sometimes those inflection points are positive and sometimes they're negative, but they're moments that absolutely change the direction that we're going. It reminds me of those like choose your own adventure stories mm. as a kid. I don't know if you read us, but like, yes. me too. And it's cool because my kids like them now too. But you know, it's sort of like if some little thing changes, it can totally change the trajectory of where the story's going and where it ends up. Sometimes we have control over that, but we always have control over how we respond to them. That's a critical thing. So, you know, part of post-traumatic growth is finding opportunities to grow from the experiences that happened to us. And, you know, that can come in many forms. Like for some people, it's more traditional sort of therapy. It can be groups that, you know, there are all these really cool writing exercises that Mm -hmm. I think are really helpful. And actually for me, even writing this book was incredibly helpful for traumatic experiences I had. So it's remarkable how we can change if we can process what happens to us. Other people do art. Um, You know, there's so many forms to try to address it. But the key thing is just to not try to shove it under the rug or in the closet, you know, just to acknowledge that that's part of our story. And it actually makes the story more interesting and rich. You saved some of your most interesting and richest stories for the end of the book. I won't share all of them, but I'm <laughs> gonna I'm gonna quote quote you a couple times. So here we go. One of your quotes that I wrote down: "True health is hidden in the million tiny moments of everyday life." I'm gonna say it again, and then I want you to tell us what you mean by this. True health is hidden in the million tiny moments of everyday life. In many ways, that sentence encapsulates the book, and I think, and also the rabbit effect. It's it's this idea that health isn't just like going to the doctor once a year for a checkup and some blood work. Health is happening like right now, wherever you're sitting, listening to this with the people who are around you, with the things that you are mentally engaged in. And I think that's really cool because that means that all of us are playing a role in this. And the other thing is you never know how your actions down the road will transform someone else's life. And it may seem something simple or minute. In fact, one of my medical students I work with was saying something about she'd had this patient that she was seeing and he was somebody of many patients, but then Later, she saw him and she he came back to her and said, what a difference she had made with her short visits every single day. And it's it's those kinds of things, whether we're in a helping role or not, we're all in a helping role. It's sort of like if you have the choice between sort of being right or kind, you know, a lot of times it pays to go with the kindness route to try to navigate that. we should make that, that one into a large billboard and put it on every <laughs> single corner in our countries. We, we might do better as both Democrats and Republicans and everybody in between. You also Absolutely. wrote, uh, people are just a collection of tissue, of muscle, of ligament, and of bone. Except, of course, they're not. So in in that quote, I want you to talk briefly about Paul. What did Paul help teach you? Paul was my cadaver during medical school, and he was my first patient. You know, Paul taught me many things. One, for all of the people that are out there that are considered doing, participating in the anatomical gift programs, I mean, 
what an incredible gift. What an incredible gift. And so there's this moment, though, where you realize as a medical student that what's important about the person that has given you this gift is no longer on, you know, sitting in the room with you, basically. And it's, you know, some people call it the spirit, the soul, it's who that person was, and that is no longer there. And you realize that, of course, we are so much more than our parts. I mean, in this case, one plus one is infinite. For me, that was really what was so important is sort of seeing this whole person. And I think What's also striking is someone I absolutely love medicine and also what can be hard about it sometimes is we like to divide the body into these little bits and we sort of forget that the magic is really in the big picture and mm. that's what's so important. Um, and I think whether it's working with patients, whether it's what you do in your role, you just have to always be thinking about the humanity side of it. It's the love, it's the kindness, it's the connection for sure. And Kelly, we could have spent an awful lot of time talking about the body, whether that means individually or collectively. What I really loved about your book is, yes, you unpacked what it means for us individually to uh, live longer and happier and healthier. But it was really done in such a fashion which was making a social stake. You were talking about how this has a ripple effect far beyond our individual needs and desires and passions and longings. But it has a ripple effect into the uh, the generations that come behind us, the neighbors that we live next to, the kids that we help raise, those that we serve through our jobs. It was an inspiring read. Oh, I appreciate it. And actually, again, I'm going to come back to Jack Buck. Really, it's incredible that experience so long ago. And I loved that you shared that when he passed away, you weren't necessarily in a place to maybe not acknowledge mm -hmm. his important role in your life. But my goodness, you've carried that on. Like it's it's incredible. And that ripple effect is living large and it's impacting all of your listeners. It's impacted me. I mean, it's just amazing. <laughs> so Kelly Harding, I have seven questions that are asked of every guest and uh, I'm going to ask them of you sequentially. They are uh, quick fire questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. Starting with number one, what's the best book you've ever read? Well, actually, one of my favorites is Being Mortal, if you've read Atul Gawande's work at all. No. Um, that's a book I particularly love, and I've read several times over. One more book. It's an old John Steinbeck book, Travels with Charlie. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of it. It's about John Steinbeck going on the road with his dog, essentially. It's weird. I have no idea why it resonates with me, but I really love it. And it's basically him exploring the U.S. and telling stories about the people he meets and the connection. And it had a cool sort of coincidence that apparently my mom had met him while he was on that ride with the van. And it's funny because it's actually written into the book, what she had described. So it it was just kind of a cool, like also personal connection in a weird way. John Steinbeck, that is very cool. So Kelly, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, I was just talking about this. So I have to work on being silly. <laughs> I think, it may, I don't know, maybe it's like spending too much time in the hospital, but I mean, <laughs> there's all this evidence that, you know, being playful and I, I think I've got a good sense of humor. So that I've carried with me, but I could definitely always lighten up a little bit more. And, um, and so that's something I work on. Thankfully, kids, pets, all those yes. things help with that. So <laughs> Even Snoopy. So Kelly, if your home <laughs> caught fire and all living pets, all living things, your babies are all out, they're all safe, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, 
What's the one item you would grab? You know, it would probably be letters from my grandmother, um, handwritten letters that I don't have electronic copies of, which is making me think I should probably scan them. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I actually had something somewhat similar happen to me where I had a storage bin in Manhattan-sized apartments. A lot of people have storage bins. So I had this storage bin and there was the most freak accident where there was a flood and everything in my storage bin got destroyed. And I realized none of it mattered. Hmm. Like it was just kind of interesting. Like I realized what was important is not physical for the most part. And actually my husband very sweetly dug out a letter that he found from my grandmother that he kept. And so I think I would try to find that letter if I could and and bring it. My grandmother was a big She'd always write these love letters to her grandchildren, and those have stayed with me over the years. What a gift. I hope the grandmothers out there are paying attention right now. So uh, they'll have memories, they'll have family dinners, they'll have the time you came over for Hanukkah or Christmas, but to have the written word in your own handwriting, uh, love letter, what what a cool gift to leave behind. Yeah, she actually would often, I thought this was really cool, at Christmas time, sometimes when times were hard, they would just exchange letters, like basically things that they loved about the people that they were in their family. And I think it's like, especially with, you know, some holidays, they can feel commercialized, but boy, what a meaningful gift. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Ah, my husband. (laughs) Get the brownie points, Kelly Harding, fine. You write about them a little bit. You wrote about your kids a little bit. You wrote about your mother a little bit. And uh, I understand the love for your husband. What's the best advice that he or anyone else ever gave you? When you lose someone you love, of course, I would love some more time with my mom too. So (laughs) the best advice I've gotten... So something I put in the book that resonated with me that has turned out to be invaluable advice is this idea of like institutions don't love you back, essentially. So Mm -hmm. you want to dedicate your time to things that are important, but at the same time, it's really the people that are important. So to focus on that aspect. That's awesome. Institutions don't love you back. Well well said. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? So it's the same thing I tell the medical students I work with, too. It's when you have the choice, show up, show up to your family events, show up to things that matter to you. Work is important, but at the same time, like, just really think about those relationships. And, you know, I'm somebody who's gotten a lot of degrees and, you know, done a lot of sort of like resume building kind of stuff. And I realized the things that are most important are not on that resume. So, so I would say, you know, lighten up, have fun, um, enjoy, like connect as much as possible and still work on things that are meaningful, mm. but there's a compromise in there. Well said. And this is the final question for Dr. Kelly Harding. Kelly, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She celebrated the light. Mm. Well, she is celebrating the light, not only individually as a spouse, as a mother, as a daughter, as a physician, but now as an author. Kelly, the book came out just a couple days ago. It's called The Rabbit Effect. Live longer, happier, and healthier with the groundbreaking science of kindness. And Exhibit A sits with us today. Kelly Harding, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for being part of our podcast. And thanks for reminding the rest of us 
that you may not always choose the path that you walk in life, but you can always choose the manner in which you walk it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really, my pleasure, John. My friends, that is Dr. Kelly Harding. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast together as a Live Inspired community. And yes, that includes you. You are part of this community. Together, we can change the world. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.